Before we jump into the sermon, I just want to give another little plug for this course. We, we have in our church two courses that we hope everybody takes. Uh, the first is Establish, which uh, is a basic uh, foundation of what it means to know Jesus and what it means to follow him. And uh, we just started that last week, and man, is it a lot of fun. And then the other is Equip, and this is to help you be able to love others. And I think we could all use some help with that. And we have, uh, this is like one of my most favorite things to do, is to be able to just work through with people. It's more of a, a dialogue than a monologue, and to just really work together. What does it mean to, uh, to love one another, uh, to love the people who don't know Jesus, and just to be light in the world. And so I really warm you, warmly uh, welcome you to come out to that. I think you'll find it to be a really great time. Well, I learned a new word this week. I got together with a, a good friend of mine who I've known since uh, I went to UBC, which is decades ago, uh, Trevor Patterson, and he taught me a new word, and it's meritocracy. Isn't that a great word? Meritocracy. Here's that. You can see on the slide what it means. Meritocracy is a society that trusts in talent and effort. It is a... Uh, that places its confidence in the talents and effort of its, of its individuals. Uh, when we look at Western society, I don't think I've never heard that word before. Maybe you've never heard of that word before. If you have, congratulations. But um, uh, I've never thought that there was a word to describe what our society is built on. And it's simply this, that the only way you're going to advance in life is if you try really hard and you're talented. So that message gets told us over and over and over again. The reason why you're not doing well in life is because you haven't tried hard enough or maybe you're not smart enough or talented enough and so you should work on that, go to school or something. But the idea is that our destiny is in our hands and it's our merit, it's our, our goodness and ability that allows us to advance in life. Now, I've grown up just assuming that that's kind of true, because it's what I hear all the time. Your life is what you make of it. Your life is the collection of all the choices that you've made, these kinds of things. So there's a few problems with that. The first is, is that it's not true. It's just not true. Um, when you look at Bill Gates... Uh, I am sure that at that time, there were uh, programmers that were just as talented as Bill Gates. I am pretty sure that he's not the most talented uh, programmer, uh, you know, at that time in the world. Yet he kind of rose above his peers and did fairly well for himself, as far as I've heard. Uh, but there's more going on. The world might call it luck. Christians would call it the sovereignty of God. But there's more going on than just us working hard. Have you noticed that? You can work super hard, and it seems like it doesn't get anywhere, and then sometimes things just seem to fall into your lap. There's more going on than just talent and hard work. The other problem with a meritocracy is that it's, uh, it's harmful. 
because we end up becoming judgmental towards people who don't seem to work as hard as us. And our advice is work harder, which isn't often a very kind thing to say to people. So there's more going on than what this uh, worldview would suggest. Uh, but here we are in a series called Turning Points, and the byline is, is that our choices matter. So how do we reconcile these things? That life isn't all about our choices, yet if we don't make healthy choices, those things are sure to have a negative consequence. So what we've done is we want to look at what the Bible says about our choices and what kind of choices really matter. And we've looked at a, a few people who've made good choices and some who've made bad choices. Today, we're going to be looking at David. Now, uh, the story of David and Goliath, that's what we're, is his turning point. If you've at all read the Bible, that's probably the most famous Old Testament Bible story there is, the story of David and Goliath. I think we learn more about it in Sunday school than we do from a, a church pulpit, but it's a very famous story, and it's simply this, that um, the, the Israelites at that time had, a, had an enemy, the Philistines, and the Philistines would come and ravage the Israelites, and they had this one decisive battle where a, uh, a giant of a man named Goliath came forward and said, uh, I dare one person to fight me. And if they win, uh, you know, we become your subjects. And if I win, you become our subjects. It was kind of this going to be this one decisive battle. And David, as a young boy, engages in this battle. And we're going to read about it in just a moment. But what we know about David, he eventually becomes the king of Israel, is that his life is characterized as being a warrior. Now, if there's any uh, uh, vocation that requires effort and talent, it would be being a warrior. Your life kind of depends on it. Uh, it's a big deal that you have some skills and you try hard, because <laughs> if you don't, you're going to die, all right? So we have David being that kind of person, characterized as a warrior. But let's look more deeply at this story to see what's really going on. So who is his enemy? As we've already said, his enemy is Goliath. And uh, this is a, a short portion of 1 Samuel 17 that describes this uh, scenario that, uh, that I've just spoken about. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was, we're just going to convert all this to, uh, you know, he was nine feet. So uh, just a little under three meters. Nine feet tall. Can you imagine? I'm six feet. So you add a third. <laughs> that is a very large person. All right? Nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 125 pounds. <laughs> That's a big dude that is well armored. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spirit, spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point, just the point, weighed 15 pounds. So, you know, can you imagine seeing somebody like that 
And this person is trained for war. This isn't a poser. This is somebody who it all means something. And uh, he knows what he's doing. Uh, when the, he comes out every day, taunts the armies of Israel, uh, mocks God, and says, I dare one of you to fight me. And he does this day after day for a very long time. It says that the people were dismayed and terrified, and so was the king at that time, Saul. Now, what is a giant? Well, a giant, if we can kind of move forward to our day, I haven't seen a lot of nine-foot people, a giant is the person or situation that most drains your faith. It's a giant of a situation. And you look at that situation, and you become dismayed and terrified. You go, there's, no, there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way that I can get out from this moment. Uh, you look at a person who you just have, um, has treated you horribly. There's no way that I could ever come out from under this in a healthy way. They're just, it, it's just a... Uh, it's an, it's an overwhelming moment. So the question that needs to be asked as we jump into this sermon is, what would be the name of your giant? In your life, is there a giant? Is there um, some desires or addictions that you say, look, I have been trying forever to overcome this. There's no way. Or you look at a hope that you've had. You've always... God has even put it on your heart. You go, I mean, it's a nice idea. I can't imagine that ever happening. Or you look at your money situation. Or you look at your, uh, the, the, the hours in the day. And there's something, whatever it is, feels impossible when you look at it. Is there something in your life right now that would be a giant? Where you look at that, you just become dismayed. I don't, it's not even, just overwhelmed and full of fear and anxiety. So, have that picture in your mind of whatever you feel is, uh, is undefeatable in your life. Person or a situation or a desire. How are giants defeated? How do we defeat giants? We're going to look at two things. First of all, it is the most, uh, um, the first response, I would never think of this being true, but we find this in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Giants are defeated by worshiping God. Now this is, uh, you know, this is just slang in uh, 1 Samuel 17 verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What's going on inside of David is he is enraged that God's name is being dishonored. This is a radically different way of, of, of working up strength to tackle a giant. Is that it's not about me, it's about God's name, and I'm enraged that God's name is being spoken of in that way. Now, I don't know about you, 
But when I think of the giants in my life, I think about how they're affecting me. Like they're stealing away my time. They're stealing away my energy or reputation or whatever it is that I look at the difficulties in life through how those difficulties are affecting my life. And here we have David, who would be a teenager at this point in time, and he's enraged that God's name is being dishonored. So, um, what if this is true? That self-centered reasons for overcoming desires uh, seldom turn into turning points. They seldom turn into turning points. Because it's like, ah, I could, I couldn't. I mean, I'm, I'm bothered with that, but ah, maybe it's not that bad. You know, if we have a, uh, if we have a self-centered orientation, usually we will choose the path of least resistance to get out of those difficult moments. It's just what humanity is like. We're not going to stand and fight for some injustice if it's just about us. You go, ah, what does it really matter? In order to, uh, in order to have a, like a, a, a holy um, anger is to be able to say, this is dishonoring the name of God. Now, the question is, how do you get there? How do you get to the place where you're being motivated by the worship of God instead of by more self-centered concerns? And here's the irony. God gives us giants to reveal our lack of talent and effort and our need to worship him. I think God brings giants into our life, things that we can't manage, can't control, that we feel terrified and dismayed over. He brings those things into our life to get us beyond ourselves. I think without impossible issues will stay in a lukewarm life that lacks any kind of turning points. And so God brings things to us that cause us to move beyond uh, meritocracy, to move beyond what we can control and manage, beyond our own talents and efforts, and he gives us something that requires God. I think this is a big deal. Do you let things bother you that you can't manage? Or do you just kind of, ah, it's okay, I'll move on. Move churches, move friends, move jobs. It's no big deal. Do, do we let things bother us knowing that we can't actually provide a solution to it? And it's only through God and for his name that we would even begin to care about that. I think of uh, the Thanksgiving testimony that my brother shared about coming to Christ uh, many years ago now. <clears throat> and I, uh, I remember he would, he would take me out 
Uh, I lived in Port Alberni at the time. He lived in Vancouver, but when he'd come back home, he'd take me out. We, we would go on, uh, uh, we only had like one major street in Port Alberni, so that's all that's going on. And we'd go down this one major street, and uh, he would take me along, and we would engage in, uh, in spiritual conversations with people who didn't know Jesus. And when we first did that, I was mostly annoyed. That why would you do this to me? I'm a kid. I don't care. I'm afraid. This is awkward. The whole thing is just not great. And we would keep going out. And there began to grow in me a deep, deep passion for people who don't know Jesus to come to know the living God. And it became a giant that I couldn't ignore. And that something needed to be done. It's not right that I would know and have a personal relationship with God for eternity, that I would avoid hell and go to heaven. And there's people who have never heard. It's not right that I would have that privilege and joy and other people would be cursed simply out of ignorance. It became a giant. I can't change anybody's heart. I can't be clever enough to have somebody decide to become a Christian. But as we let the, the, the desire to honor God and to love our neighbor affect us, we end up living a life that's beyond what we can manage or control or accomplish through our own t- efforts and talents. It's the worship of God. Number two is David didn't just worship God. He had a, what we're calling a practiced faith. He had a faith that he practiced doing. When David recounts, so uh, you have these, all these trained soldiers in Israel who are intimidated by Goliath. This young kid comes along. He's bringing supplies for his brothers who were in the war. He's bringing some food supplies for them. He hears what's going on. He goes, this is horrible. God's name is being dishonored. Israel could become enslaved. This is horrible. Somebody needs to do something about this. And they look at him. They go, you're a kid. Like, let us deal with it. And he wouldn't let it go. And here's, here, he says, I'm going to fight Goliath. And this is what his argument was. The Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He was a shepherd. And so he would be out in the fields. He would have to defend his flock from lions and bears. He goes, look, I have a history of dealing with animals that are way more powerful than me. And the Lord has always delivered me. And so the Lord will rescue me from the hand. So a paw of a lion, paw of a bear, he's going to rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. It's just all the same to me. Because in every situation, I've been practicing this for years, that in situations that are beyond my control, I know that the hand of the Lord is with me and he will have his name honored and I'll be protected. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely incredible. Here's the point. Turning points, moments of great change in your life, take practice. You actually work toward a turning point as opposed to it coming upon us magically. He has been fighting lions and bears all of his life. And so this moment of a Philistine, he says, I've been here before. I know what this is about. I can tackle this. 
because my God will deliver me because he's proven himself faithful. So let me ask you then, uh, or, or let me suggest to you rather, what the strategies are of the enemy that require practice resisting. These are Satan's strategies to get us to not look at the Goliaths and defeat them and have a turning point in our life. The first would be intimidation. It'd be intimidation. One of the primary reasons why we aren't sometimes brave in our faith is we're just intimidated by the people around us. We want to be liked. We don't want to get into any awkward moments. We just feel intimidated. Sometimes we're just tired. And it's just not worth the effort. Sometimes in in parenting, you know, it's been a long day and lots of stuff going on. And then my kids are acting out and it's like, oh, I don't want to do this right now. It's just, it's been a hard day. They can fight it out. (laughs) I just, I just want to. And the enemy is saying, you're overwhelmed. You should take a break. Don't engage in that. I think a primary way that the enemy steals away our faith in God is through forgetting what he's done in the past. We just forget. We look back over our life and we say, God's never been faithful. He's never showed himself. He's never been good. He's never been strong. And it's just not true. But what we can do is we can paint over our life in such a way that says that God has never been good. We can lie to ourselves. I've talked to lots of people who who don't know Jesus personally. And they might have very fine-sounding arguments uh, of of why he doesn't exist. And they'll, um, they'll, they'll describe how they prayed once and he didn't answer that prayer and they've resented him ever since. But it takes great humility for somebody to say, well, actually, that's true. But these things also happened. And they were more than just coincidence. And I know that that's true if I'm honest. We can have uh, selective amnesia when it comes to the goodness and the greatness of God. And it's one of the primary tactics that Satan uses against us to discourage us from attacking the Goliaths in our life and seeing a turning point occur. Two others that I think just need to be mentioned. And the first is this, is, uh, is this is a unique moment. I don't have it in my notes. I think it's 2 Corinthians 7.10. But it says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. No temptation has seized you except what is common. I think that you and I, when we face a difficult moment, we want it to look as unique as possible. Like, this is a hard one. You know, there's other things. Yeah, I know you have problems. I have a major problem. And it's a Goliath-side problem. My problems are way harder than yours, which means that all of your advice doesn't work on me. And God isn't as big as he needs to be in order to see this defeated. We somehow seem to have a desire to let our problems be bigger than God so that we don't have to deal with them. They become unique. And maybe another way is that moments surprise us 
and we don't know what to do. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. You listen to somebody who isn't following Jesus, and all of the difficult things that happen in their life just seem to be a surprise. I don't know how this happened. I don't know, how, I, I don't know why I'm anxious. I don't know why I'm depressed. I don't know why nothing seems to work out for me. It's all surprising. It's a way to blame God. It takes practice facing forgetfulness and discouragement and intimidation and laziness and uniqueness. It takes practice. Say, I've seen you before. You've tried to intimidate me before. I've been in a situation where I felt overwhelmed. I've been in a situation where I felt like I was at the end of my rope. And you begin to learn how to find faith in these difficult moments. And then you just try to be faithful in moments. And then there seems to come a moment when you go, hold on here, I've just made a turning point. My life is going in a different direction because I've been practicing faith. I've been practicing how to defeat the enemy in the face of giants. I'd like to note something about the weapon that David used. I brought one. We, we went to, uh, we've been to Israel a few times. And it says that he, uh, well, I'll read it. So instead of Saul's armor, which would be armor that was similar to Goliath, but much smaller, but similar. He says, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I'm not comfortable. Instead, it says in verse 40, he took his staff in his hand, which is a, which is a stick. He took a stick chose five smooth stones from the stream. We've been to that stream, by the way. And uh, we brought home a stone. We found out later that the Israeli government just brings in truckloads of stones <laughs> because all the tourists bring home a stone from the... Anyways, so we have a stone that was trucked in from somewhere. But, uh, but five smooth stones. Put them in a pouch and put them in the pouch of a separate bag and with his sling in his hand... He approached the Philistines. So this is a sling. You put a rock in it, and you, uh, you hold it out here. You whip it around. You let go. You let it go in a way that I can't imagine how you could ever hit a target with it. But uh, so you have somebody who has a, the, the, the head of the spear is 15 pounds. Their armor is 125 pounds. They're nine feet tall, and this is what you come with. Isn't that incredible? This is your strategy. This is your plan. I got you. You should be shaking right now. Look at this thing. Isn't that incredible? How do you do that? How do you run up to a nine-foot giant who is intent on killing you, not with, with uh, you know, bad words, <laughs> like with a sword, and this is what you, and you run toward the giant with this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war, war as the world does. Look, you guys, when I have a difficulty in my life, I want to become stronger put more effort in, become smarter. I want to fight the way the world tells me to fight. 
I want to fight with that. I want to fight with strength. I don't want to fight with this. This is embarrassing. I want to fight the way the world tells me to fight. So what does this sling, what does this represent? Listen to uh, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You have physical armor. I have something much more powerful. And don't be distracted. I've killed bears and lions with this because I come in the name of the Lord. All those gathered here will know, verse 47, that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. I talk to Christians all the time. I've said this before, but I need to say it today. I've talked to Christians all the time. I'll ask them, uh, do you believe that you're going to heaven? They go, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven for sure. I prayed that prayer and I'm going to heaven. Great. Uh, Can you trust him with your money? Well, I mean, God wants me to be a good steward. And so I have to just make sure that I have enough for me that I can control. Do you trust him with your time? Well, yeah, I mean, I trust him, but I just have a lot to do. And God wouldn't want me to be neglectful. I have to work out every day, and I have things that I need to do. There's hobbies that, that I, God doesn't want me to, to not do those. I have a, I have a job that, that requires, it requires 70 hours a week. It just requires that. Surely God wouldn't, he gave me this job, so... And what we do is we paint ourselves into a corner of a faithless life. It's just a faithless life. Would we share our faith? Well, I mean, I'd love to share my faith. I'm just not very good with words. And we paint ourselves into a corner because we look at what we have and we go, that's not enough. It's just not enough. When we look at what's facing us, I don't have enough. And what God says is I actually want you to have this small amount so that it will be terribly clear in your mind and everybody who sees this next moment that it is only by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that anything has ever changed in your life or any blessing has come to you or through you. I need it to be this so that it's clear where our hope lies. I am certain that the Christian life is impossible without faith. I'm certain. And for us to experience turning points requires that our faith shifts from what the world puts confidence in to the name of the Lord. And only as we practice trusting in him will we experience the turning points that we long to have. Sling-like faith feels foolish. But the point is to transfer our faith off of our talent and effort 
and on a God's majesty and mercy. Therefore, to fight with faith, we practice point number one in daily life. How do I worship you in this moment? How do, I, how do I live this moment for your glory and your honor, trusting in your resources and not my own? How do I practice living a life of worship? I'm going through a course right now by my old professor from the 1980s who passed away in the late 80s, um, Dr. Klaus Bachmiel. And it's a course on the Ten Commandments. It's called Christian Ethics. Great. It's just outstanding. I can't take notes fast enough. And he says uh, uh, all of the commandments, but certainly the first four, are all about the command to worship God. Whether you're here and you believe in God or you don't, doesn't matter. God commands you to worship him. He commands you to. Well, that's horrible. Like, what about my free will? Well, you can choose to do that. Nobody can make you do it. It's your choice, but it is a command. You should have no other gods before me. I command you. No other gods. Nothing to compete with me. I command you. I'll talk to you Christians. I command you to worship me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of the day. I command you to practice worship so that when giants come along, you know what to do in that moment because you've been doing it all along. Instead of coming up to a moment that requires worship, requires faith, and go, whoa, I've never been here before. Well, of course you're going to get defeated. Isn't this, I think this is so radical that worship is our salvation. Trust is where God's life is found. Life is not about me and it's not about my resources. I can't follow Jesus inside of my resources for my glory. It's only for his glory and by his resources can I be a Christian. Not a, a high-ranking Christian, a Christian. Because Christians worship Jesus. That's what we do. We practice in moments that feel overwhelming, where we're terrified and dismayed, and we don't trust in our talents and strengths. We, we, we choose to make this a moment of bringing glory to his name, and so we live in a different way. So in conclusion... What strategies does the enemy use on you? When you look at those strategies of intimidation and laziness, forgetfulness, uniqueness, surprise, what, how does faith and worship, how does Satan try to steal that away from you? I'm, I, I don't fish. Um, uh, what lure works on you? When you get intimidated, do you crumble? When you get overwhelmed, do you crumble? When you see a new moment, is it surprising? Haven't seen this before. For sure, God can't be powerful enough. What lure works on you? In those moments, 
of that giant that faces you, what must you do for God's honor? I am picturing a community of people that live for the honor of God. Can you imagine the force of a people who live to honor the name of God? Can you imagine not fighting for prestige or significance or what about me? That we would come together and we say that we are here, we, we, we sing. We're here for the glory and honor of God. And that we would approach moments in the day and say, this is for your honor and your glory. It would, it would transform, forget your life, it would transform the city and the nations. A transformation. Talk about a turning point. I can't tell you how much this burns for me. This is such a big deal to me that we would be a people that live for the honor and glory of God. Spitting on our name, that his name would be glorified. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to receive his salvation. So what does faith look like in that moment where you want to honor God, not yourself? I want to honor God in this moment. That means that something needs to happen in this moment that can't be just naturally explained. I'm facing a giant. What does faith look like? What does, what does this look like? What does a sling look like for you? As, as we heard last week, what does a, a, a few loaves of bread and a fish look like? What does that look like for you? Does it look like confessing a truth, engaging in an act of love, swallowing our pride, taking time out of our busy day to care for somebody who would never personally benefit us? Whatever it looks like, you are building a turning point. Through acts of worship, we're building a turning point. We can have the worship team come forward. Father, my my words feel like a sling in the face of bronze armor. But I thank you for the story that ended with David defeating Goliath with a sling. I thank you for the end of that story. And Father, I thank you that as each person here has pictured their Goliath, they also feel like all they have is a sling. And I thank you today that trust in you and worshiping your name is enough to defeat any giant that would present us at any moment of the day. I ask on behalf of my friends that we would turn from a self-worship life to a God-worship life. 
and that our trust and confidence would not be in our merit, not be in our talents and efforts, but would be in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would devote ourselves to bringing honor and glory to your name. Let this be true. Let this be said about us as a church community. In your name, amen.